guys can pass it. This morning, I am going to read in a few minutes out of 2 Kings chapter 22. It's not going to be on the screens, um, but if you'd like to follow, that's where I'm going to be at. 2 Kings chapter 22. Um, If you were with us last week, uh, we started talking, or we've, for the last few weeks, we've started talking about discipleship and exactly what that means, what it looks like. And um, this morning, uh, my goal and what we are hopefully going to accomplish is um, another kind of beginning part of the discipleship process. Um, Because to know where you are going, you first need to know where you are. Um, Have you ever been at the mall? If you're a guy, you've been drugged to the mall. And there's this moment where every store looks exactly the same, and you have no clue where you're at, and you're just trying to find that sign that says, you are here. And you're just like, I am here, Bass Pro Shop is there. How do I get from here to there? And so you know where you want to go, but first you need to know where you are. And so my goal this morning is to give um, a picture of where we are as a church, but not just us as a church, but really the American church as a whole in um, my opinion. Of course, you could feel free to disagree with that, but what I think the church is, where we're at, and where we are headed, and why the discipleship is so important for right now and this time in our history to figure out that we are here. So, um, let's do a little little game real quick. Um, I'd like everyone to close their eyes. Again, I know I'm having all closure eyes all kinds of ways this morning. Now, I want you to now keep your eyes closed, take your finger, and I want you to point to which way you think east is. All right, keep the eyes closed, point to which way is east. Come on, pick a, pick a spot. Get the hands real high in the air so we could all see them. Pick it, pick it. And now everyone open their eyes and look at all of these different directions. This way, this way. So which way is east? Which way? And our surveyor would tell us that this way is east. This way. So it is good to know exactly where you are before you start the journey. Because if we were going, say, north to Canada, and then we think, oh, this way, and then or this way, we could get there, but sometimes it'll be the long way around. So it's a good idea to know exactly where we are. Otherwise, we end up making a lot of circles. We end up kind of like the children in the wilderness circling the mountain over and over again. And could you imagine circling that mountain and someone says, hey, weren't we here before? I I remember this section. I've been here. Have y'all ever been on a trip? And then all of a sudden the road sign and you're like, wait, we've been here before, yet it's hours later. How is that possible. And yet throughout history, we begin to see these patterns. We begin to see that there are those that learn from their loops and make a turn and those that continue on the same track. And so if we don't make a turn in the right direction, we will keep going in the direction that we've always gone. Um, We see this is not just true as nations and people as a whole. We see this inside of families. We see this... um, with the father that was a drunk 
that turns the son and then the grandson that also has a problem with alcohol. And we see this in addiction to this. And then the son has addiction to this. And, then the fa- and so it creates this circle inside of the families. It creates this circle inside of the church. It creates this circle inside of life where we keep going over and over the th- same things time and time again. Now, don't raise your hand, but is there anything in your life that it seems to just keep getting at you time and time again? Is there something that you've seen, I have battled this over and over. I've been down this road before, but it just keeps seeming to get to me. We need to know where we are to know where we're going. And see, the thing is, as we continue with our journey, God puts all types of road signs in our way to say, listen, stop, danger ahead. If you continue down this path, it's not good. Or wait, you're heading in the wrong direction, stop, make a change make it turn. So there's all these kind of signs and signals that God will give us along the way to say, hey, hold on, this isn't right. And so a lot of times we don't like to listen to those signals because, you know, hey, that's further on down the road and we've got plenty of time. It's kind of like the road traffic where it says one lane road ahead. Ah, you know, keep on going. Look at all this. There's, there's lots of cars in the line. I'm way much faster. And then there's that guy that gets over at the very last minute and you know what I'm talking about, because you are that guy. We've all done it. Come on. I've done it. You've done it. We've all done it. But there's all these road signs telling us the road, this lane is getting ready to end. And God has all of these things throughout the Bible that says, listen, there's certain paths that if you keep going on it, this lane is going to end. You've got to get over. You've got to change paths. So today, again, we are going to kind of get a picture of where exactly we are as we start this discipleship journey on where we are going. Now, I want to give you a brief history before we get to 2 Kings chapter 22. Because Israel is God's chosen people. Israel gives us a really good outlook of what Christians can look like when they obey and disobey God in patterns that we can follow. So, Israel is formed. Abraham is given this promise. Abraham is given the promise that, hey, you will be the father of this great nation. You're going to have sons and daughters, and they will multiply, and they will look like the stars in the sky. So Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. And Jacob, in turn, has 12 sons. These 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, Israel finds its way into slavery inside of Egypt. After a period of slavery in Egypt, they begin to cry out to God, and God hears their cry, and God raises up Moses. Moses comes on the scene and sets the people free. He sets them free, but then they go and they wander in the wilderness for the next 40 years. They're supposed to be going into the promised land, but where they end up is wandering in the wilderness because they are afraid to take the promise that God has given them. Why? Because they're giants in the land, and we, we can't do it. So they've come out of slavery, and now they're just wandering. And God has to wait for this generation to die out, for another generation to come and take its place. And then in Joshua, we see them entering into the promised land. Now, inside of this wilderness experience, a lot takes place. Uh, God gives us the book of Leviticus, um, 
He gives us the Ten Commandments. He gives us all of these different kind of rules and regulations. Um, There's different feasts that are appointed. There's different times of the year where he says, do these certain things. Uh, The way he likes the sacrifices that are established. And all of this is happening in the wilderness time. He says, because there is coming this moment where you will say, promised land, and this is how you are going to act. So all of this takes place in the wilderness. They go in, they finally take the promised land, and at that point, they appoint judges. Judges now rule over Israel, and after some time, the nation starts to grow, and they look around, they say, well, look, all of these other nations have kings. We must have a king, too. So they appoint themselves a king, and they appoint Saul. And then after Saul is David, and after David is Solomon. And then after Solomon, there is a split. There is a divide in the kingdom. Remember, there's these 12 tribes that make up the nation of Israel. So there's this type of almost civil war where it's split to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Ten tribes make up the north. Two tribes make up the south. And so there's the kings of the north, and there is the kings of the south. And if you begin to read the book of First and Second Kings, you will see these lists of all of the names of these kings, the ones that are ruling up north and the ones that are ruling up south. And there's a common refrain after each king's name and how long that he has or reigned as the king in that land. And it says this, And he was a good king in the eyes of the Lord, and he did what was right, or he was a bad king, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So there is this refrain that talks about these kings. And so now we find ourselves in Second Kings chapter 22, And we find the king Josiah, who's ruling, and it says this, Josiah, by the way, was the last of the good kings, says this, he was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right to the left. So here he is a good king. Now, it came to pass in the 18th year that the king, um, Josiah, sent Shapan, the scribe, the son of Azal, to the house of the Lord, saying this, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which was the doorkeepers, which they have gathered from the people, and let them deliver it to the hands of those that are doing the work and who are overseers in the house of the Lord, doing the work, the repairs, the damages of the house, to carpenters and to builders and to masons, that they may buy timber and stone and repair the house of the Lord. However, there there need not be any accounting made with them of the money delivered into the hand because they deal faithfully. So the high priest said to the scribe, I have found a book of the law inside the house of the Lord. And Helkiah, the high priest, gave this book to the scribe and he read it. So the scribe then goes to the king, bringing word saying this, your servants have done exactly what you have asked. We have gathered the money that was found in the house We have delivered it into the hands of those who do the work, 
who oversee the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, The high priest has given me a book, and now he reads this book in the presence of the king. Now it happened, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, that he tore his clothes. And the, com- the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Alkaim the son of Shaphan, the son of these other guys that I cannot even get close to pronouncing their names. And he says this, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all of Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is roused against us, but because our fathers have not obeyed the, book, the words of this book to do according to all of them that has been written. So here we find the king. And this is a good king. And he wakes up one day, basically, and looks at the temple of God. And the temple, the house of the Lord, is really in a state of needing a whole lot of repairs. It's just kind of broken down. So he sends word through his scribe and says, listen, go collect the money that has been collected. Give it to the carpenters, the builders, that they would come in and they would clean up. They would fix the house of the Lord. So they begin to do this. Now, in the process of cleaning up the temple, a book is found. And in this book is... Uh, what we would know as the book of Leviticus, the book of the law. And so this book all of a sudden begins to be read inside the presence of the king. So, very first thing is, remember, he looks out, he sees the temple, it's in disrepair, and he wants to fix it up. He does the same thing that we would do. Like, hey, it needs some repairs, let's fix it up. The thing is, the problem with this is he takes the same approach that we take in our lives, is he's trying to clean the temple from the outside in, and God wants to clean the temple from the inside out. He looks and he says, I could could fix it with paint, and I could fix it with boards and with carpenters and these laborers, and this is how we are going to fix up and clean the house of God. But God has another plan. Has anything in your house been so dirty for so long that it's just become acceptable. You know what I'm talking about. That garage that just has stuff piled up and packed in. And one day, I'll get to it, but that one day becomes a few years later and then a few years later. And the next thing you know, it just becomes acceptable. And this is how the house of the Lord has turned into. It's become kind of a catch-all for anything that goes. In my house, um, I actually have books everywhere. There's books piled like on the shelves where they're supposed to be, but then there's books on the floor, and then there's books. And I keep saying, oh, yeah, I'll organize them, and I'll get there, but it it never happens. There's just books everywhere. But even if I do clean it, what happens is it's not long before it gets dirty again, and then there's more books here, and and then uh, i got to do it again, and i got to clean up even more. And see, the same is true with our faith. See, with our faith, what happens is sometimes the basics begin to get neglected. And it just seems like, oh, it's just been a few days without reading my Bible. And then a few days turns into a few weeks without reading my Bible. And then it turns into a few months without reading my Bible. And then when's the last time that we've prayed 
And next thing you know, these very basic things become neglected. And the next thing you know, it becomes like this book, a book that's nowhere to be found. It's collecting dust on a shelf. And so we come with the, the, the expectancy of, look, look at humanity. Look at the American church. Man, look at the state that it's in. There's all of these things that we're doing wrong, and we can list all of the ways in which the church is failing, A, B, C, and D. And so we take the same approach that Josiah takes is we're going to now try and clean it up. We're going to try and fix humanity, and there is this problem. And so we take this outside-in approach. And so we build nice buildings, and we have really nice worship music, and we have really fine-tuned teachings, and we have all of these things. And before we realize it, it gets dusty again. And Jesus tells us in Luke 11, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he says this, Look, you guys are just trying to clean the outside of the cup. He's like, but I'm trying to clean the inside of the cup, which, of course, is obviously the best thing to do. So if you were really, really thirsty, and I had two cups up here, and one of them, the outside of the cup just looked destroyed, and the other one, the inside of the cup, just filled with oil and dirt, and I had this jug of Kool-Aid just ready to quench your thirst. Oh, it's so nice. Which cup would you like? It's your choosing. Would you like the oil dirty cup? Or the one that on the outside, hey, it's messed up, but on the inside it's clean. Well, it doesn't take much for us to know which cup that we would pick. But yet, we take the same approach to our lives on wanting to clean up the outside, and God wants to clean up the inside. And so we kind of tell people that come to Jesus and do this. Stop swearing, stop doing drugs, stop doing this. Whenever I was a teenager, the big thing was don't watch rated R movies and don't listen to this type of music and all of these things. And everything was on the outside. And there was nothing at all happening on the inside. So maybe on the outside, my life looked a little bit more cleaned up. But on the inside, I'm hurting and I'm broken and I'm in need of something more than just to abstain from watching a rated R movie. Do you know what I'm saying? And Jesus comes on the scene, and Jesus says, Listen, I want to clean you up from the inside out, and all of these other things are a byproduct to what's happening on the inside, and they're not a prime product. And that's a huge difference. So the byproduct of me knowing and loving and worshiping Jesus is that these other things take place in my life. I no longer want to do some of the things I did before. It's not that I don't do these things because I love Jesus. It's I love Jesus and it makes me not want to do these things. It's a huge difference, a huge difference. But yet we like to clean from the outside and why? We do this because there are instantaneous results. We could see results. Oh, wow, the house looks shinier. The house looks clean. Oh, look at this guy. He's doing so much better. He's, he wears a little bit nicer clothes. He doesn't cuss as much. He doesn't do this. And so life is getting better, and he looks a lot better from the outside. But yet on the inside, it's a whole nother story. We like to produce quick results. And... Sometimes with Jesus, things take time. Here's the thing. When you get saved, you are saved. You are on your way to heaven. You are brand new creation in Christ. But yet, you are being saved. 
you are being made new. See, it's instantaneous, and yet it's a process. See, it's like when your old nature, it's, it's a seed. And the only thing that could come of this old nature, this seed, this, let's, let's call it an apple tree, that it's going to produce apples. And when you come to know Jesus, he gives you an entirely new nature. But that new nature comes into, in the form of a seed. And so now maybe it's like oranges. So now you can produce oranges. Whereas you could never produce this before on your own. Now you have an entirely new nature in Christ. But yet there are some, still some things in your life that you need to work out. In other words, you are saved and yet you are being saved. You are saved yet you could still be dealing with anger in your heart. You could still be dealing with lust. You could still be dealing with pride. You could still be dealing with whatever it is. And Paul tells us the same thing. He's like, man, I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. I love Jesus. But yet there's these things that I want to do, but I don't do them. And there's these things over here that I know I shouldn't do, but I still do them. And so it's a process. And yet it's instantaneous. It's kind of hard to grasp that, but yet that's the miracle of the kingdom. That's the miracle of the gospel, that you are saved, and yet you are being saved because God likes to work from the inside out. We live in a world that likes to work from the outside in. We like to shine up the church. We like to make it look really nice and really fancy, and God, I think, is looking down, and he's saying, this, I want something more. And so in the process of trying to clean up this church, Josiah and the, um, is doing his best, man, because something's wrong. The, the, the temple is in a state of disrepair. But along the route, a book is found. Now this is sad, and this is joyous at the same time. It's joyous because this is amazing. This is the book of the law. This is the word of God. And it's sad because it begs to offer the question, well, how did it ever get lost in the first place? Which asks the next well, what were they doing in the temple all of these years? What was the priest teaching without any word? And yet we find that here in the church today. We find a lot of motion and a lot of action and a little bit of word. And what was supposed to be central to the, to the temple, the word of God, the laws and the nature and the things and, that God was trying to teach his people had become forgotten. And so there's a lot of ways in the church where what was supposed to be central had just become extra. And we do lots of wonderful, great, great things. And we, we help marriages and we help uh, people dealing with these addictions, we have great children's ministry, and the band sounds really good, and this, and blah, 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 and what is central just kind of gets, hmm. And so my question is, how do we react when we are presented with something that we have forgotten? This book. See, the king's reaction was, man, after reading this, he tore his clothes and said, man, we are doing some things wrong, and we've got to get right with God. And so you, you can say, well, you know, Lucas, he was reading from the Old Testament. He was reading from Leviticus. We're no longer underneath the law. Okay, so then my question would be, what if you read the gospel of, God, of John? What is your reaction to the gospel? 
If you have never read the Bible before in your life, if you have never attended a church service in your life, if you don't know anything about Jesus, and for the very first time you pick up this word, and you read that book of John, and you hear about the life of Jesus Christ, what is your reaction to the gospel? For the most part, the American reaction to the gospel is, well, we attend church on Sundays. And every once in a while, maybe I'll throw some money in the offering plate, or I might give a little bit of money to the poor, or, or we, we do things in which I respond, really? Like, that is the reaction to the greatest message on the planet, the gospel message of Jesus Christ and everything that he did for us. See, the king's re- reaction was, listen, we've done some things wrong, and we need to get right with God. Have we maybe done some things wrong and need to get right with God? Have we been trying to clean up the outside and neglected the inside? Has the Bible not become central? Has it just become a byproduct and not the prime product? See, because the fact is, whenever we only try to clean up the, ma- clean up the outside, we're trying to maintain a certain appearance. We're trying to look the part. We're trying to look like the church, and we find ourselves what I call painting over rust. And it's not long before that rust returns. And so we've cleaned up the outside, but it just keeps returning. And so, remember, we're Christians now, so we can't do these things, so we've got to quick paint back over it again because we don't want anyone to see that we're dealing with these issues in our life. And our whole life becomes maintenance-oriented. Our whole life revolves around the fact that we have to maintain a certain appearance. And the outcome of this is we just get burnt out. You can only maintain that appearance for so long. And people fall away. That's why so many people are a part of the church and then one day they're just gone. Well, what happened? Was it, was it this big thing that happened or was it? No, they just got tired of the maintenance. And God wants to change us from the inside out, not the outside in. And see, how does this relate to now and where we are today as a church? See, now I believe that there's a people that are coming up that are being involved with God and with church that doesn't care about the hype anymore. They don't care how good the band sounds. They don't care about how eloquent this is. It's like this message. I know that this is not my normal message. I know it's not filled with all of these things, but I, I think that there's a lot of people that are coming on that say, you know what, I just need God. I need something more than just a good sermon. I need something more than just hearing about your relationship with God. I need to know God for myself. I, see, I think that there's people that don't care about the hype. The hype leads to a house full of idols. That's what happened and Second Kings, when, when all of the hype, when everything that became the sacrifices and the feasts and all these things were happening, things get lost. What was supposed to be central became dusty and to the point where, hey, we found this book. We don't know what to do with it. It goes on to say that Josiah goes inside the house of the Lord, and he begins to rip out all of the idols. There's all types of even wooden idols that are 
to other gods in the regions. All of these things had infiltrated the house of the Lord. All because people got caught up in the hype. They got caught up with doing church instead of being church. But I believe that there's a people that are no longer satisfied with just doing church. I believe that there's a people that don't care about how it looks on the outside, just what God is doing on the inside. Because when all we do is look on the outside, it leads us to frustration. I know that some of you know exactly what I'm talking about this morning. Feeling like you've just been painting over rust. And so again, the question remains, if we were to read the book of John, or Matthew, or Mark, or Luke, and read it for the very first time, how would we react to the gospel? Well, at the very end of Matthew, Jesus says this, And all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Pretty clear what Jesus wants, that we would go and make disciples. Yet how often is that the focus of the church? See, we have visions of grand buildings, and we have visions of this and this and this. Do we have a vision for discipleship? Because it's on Jesus' heart. Here's the reality. You can go your entire Christian walk and never make one single disciple. And that is sad. Because that is what's supposed to be central. God giving us this command, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. All this power and all this authority that's been given to me, you go and you do something with it. Are we listening to God? Because it's kind of like a map. We need to understand where we are at. And again, this is my opinion of the church, is I think we've done a really, really wonderful job of cleaning up the outside. We do some amazing things, but God wants to do more. See, we want to fix things. We want things to get on the move. We want actions and all this stuff. And so what we do, we do just like Josiah did. We, we call the carpenters, and we call the masons, and we call all these people, and we get to work, and we clean up the outside. But God doesn't want to change the church with hammer and nails. God wants to change the church with a book. His plan is different from our plan, and his plan involves this. His plan, I know you think that you can do it like this, but this is how you're going to do it. And so for us sometimes that's hard to understand because, hey, I could swing the hammer a lot easier than I can get on my knees and pray. It's a lot easier for me to, to go and buy some new clothes and and stop doing this than it is for me to read my Bible and pray and cultivate my relationship with God. It's easier for the basics just to become dusty 
on a shelf till we get to the point where we've been around the mountain time and time again and we realize, why is it that I keep coming to the same spot? And the answer isn't some great thing. It's just you just got to turn. You just, some things got to change. There's certain things that have to be central. And this is, the sta- this is the stage in which I think we find American Christianity where God's saying, listen, you've you tried to do it with hammer and nails, and now I'm going to show you you're going to do it with a book. And those that continue to try to do it with hammer and nails, it, it's, it's not a good outcome. But those that let me into hearts and to the temple, man, it's an amazing journey. Because here's the thing, God's God's plan in, inside of all of history, inside of all of redemptive history, it shows us that through insurmountable odds, through overwhelming circumstances, the people of God always remain. There is always the people of God that are going through incredible hardships, yet there is joy. Love does win. God is in control despite what the circumstances may be. And God wants to be centered. So I'm going to ask the band to come back up. And as we sing one more song, the question that I want to ask us as a church this morning is, um, have we tried to clean up our lives with our own efforts? Have we tried so long just to be really good Christians only to find it's like painting over rust? And we have to keep maintaining this appearance for so long that, man, we're just burnt out. Has what's supposed to be central in your life become lost? How should we respond to the gospel? How should we respond to the gospel message? I mean, I know that that's not... um, a real big, like, wow. But that is what's central to being a Christian. This message that God so loved the world. He so loved us that he sent his son. And he died for us. And everything that he did. He didn't die so that I could just be happier. He didn't die so all my bills could get paid. He didn't die so that way life could be a little bit easier. He died because he so loved me and I was trapped in my sin. And I had this nature inside of me that there was no getting away from. I was falling outside of God and I was drowning in a sea of sin and I needed help and he did it for me. And he provided a way that all that would believe in him would come and find peace with him, would find rest with him. And he says, come and he says, you know what, you don't have to, pretend to be a certain way you don't have to act like everything's okay this 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 life is real and he he calls these disciples to himself and and one of the disciples is even a thief and he's still and god's saying just just come closer 
God's praying for him. And, and he has Peter right beside him, and, and Peter's like his right-hand man, and Peter's just gung-ho, and, you know, wherever you go, God, I'm going to follow you only to mess up really big and deny Jesus three times. Jesus, I don't even know who he is. But then Jesus has a resurrection, and Jesus says, you know, Peter, I love you. I know you love me. I know you messed up. But feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And then he goes on to say this. Listen, there's, there's a time in your life where people are going to lead you to a place that you don't want to go. In other words, this, Peter, like following me involves this. Following me involves going to a place you don't want to go, but yet that is the path that I've laid out for you. And he says the same thing to us. There will be times in our life and our walks with Christ where God will lead us in a direction in which we do not want to go. And we have got to have the strength and the courage and the relationship to follow. I say, Jesus, no matter what, no matter where you lead, no matter how it looks on the outside, God, I'm going to follow you. So if you would, please again, close your eyes with me. And if there's anyone in here that doesn't know Jesus, or maybe you've said the prayer time and time again, and it just kind of feels like God is just so distant, just something has to change. Yeah, maybe you've cleaned up the outside, but on the inside, you're just hurting on the inside, you're just crying out, saying, God, I just can't live like this anymore. God, I just want to know you. God, I just need to know you. I don't need you fill in the blank. I need you, God. Right now, just tell them in your own way. I'm not going to lead you in a prayer or have you put your hand up or anything like that. I just want you to spend a few moments with God. And if you would be so courageous to just give your heart to Him. Say, God, even if you lead me in a direction that's uncomfortable, even if you lead me to where I don't want to go, God, take my heart. I've been around this mountain one too many times before. I've been here before, and I need to change directions.